This is the Vorpal Network. Welcome to Dice Monkey Radio, Episode 3. My name is Mark, once again, and joining me this week, we have Tracy Barnett of Sand and Steam. How's it going, guys? Now, Tracy, you um, you have this new role-playing game that you're working on right now that's uh, for Pathfinder, Savage Worlds, and Fate. Yeah. Uh, what's what's the idea behind it? Uh, well, basically, the the main premise is that Sand and Steam is one one big setting that's split between three different rule systems. So rather than create the entire setting all for Pathfinder and all for Savage Worlds and all for Fate, I wanted to take parts of the setting where certain certain stories could be told, like uh, political intrigue, for example, lends itself really, really well to fate. Okay. So the entire portion of the setting, uh, the collegium, that deals with political intrigue, that's done up in fate, or will be, once I, once I get there. Mm-hmm. And the part of the setting where it would be a lot of dungeon crawling and not racial tension necessarily, uh, but uh, different... Takes on different viewpoints uh, is really suited to Pathfinder, and mm-hmm. so I'm doing that section in Pathfinder, and it's an attempt to see if a setting can act as a platform, you know, one setting but expressed in different ways. So, if somebody wanted to have all of the elements, would would you suggest that they sort of switch between them throughout the campaign? The different. Um, Ideally, like I, I was talking to a friend about this at a convention a couple months ago, and they asked me that, and my answer was that would basically be like the greatest realization that this idea worked. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and once I get all three portions done, I'd like to write some kind of sort of translation guide to be like, well, how do you take similar characters and move them from one system to another? Mm-hmm. Uh, but the thing is that I, I know that's an unrealistic goal. Uh, there are people who play Pathfinder, they just play Pathfinder. Same for Savage Worlds and same for Fate. And so what I'm also doing is all of the system-free setting material is, as I'm getting here written, going up uh, in wiki form uh, that I have a link to on the on the website. And people will be able to forever, it's Creative Commons license, the setting stuff is, they'll be able to look at any part of the setting they want to and use it. So if you've been playing Pathfinder in the Undercity and you managed to get out of that situation, you want to explore the actual city of Kaje itself, but you don't want to switch to Savage Worlds, then you have all the setting material right there. Okay. It's not Pathfinder-specific, so it's going to take a little bit of legwork to adapt, but it's there for you to use because I, I don't... I don't want to force people necessarily to say, well, no, if you don't play the game using the system I say you're supposed to use, then you're doing it wrong, because mm. that's BS. I mean, people play mm. people play the games the way that they want to play them. And on my end, I'm, I made the choice to divide the setting up the way I did, because I think that I can do each portion of the setting more justice if I limit my focus to a given rule set for that section. Okay. And what's the world of, of Sand and Steam like? Um, it's really, uh, right now, it's just a city. Um, it's a city called Kaje. Um, I'm not finally settled on the name yet because I, I spelled it as a, uh, a transliteration of the Japanese word for shadow. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's spelled K-A-J, K-A-G-E, which looks like cage mm-hmm. and is very easy to misread. 
So I may change that, but it's a it's a big techno magical city in the middle of a desert. Uh, it's run by a group of evil wizards uh, known as the Collegium that not, don't just run the city, but they run a mages college. And the city itself is basically all made of metal. Uh, X number of years ago in the timeline, the mages basically pulled the city up from the ground whole cloth. Hmm. So it's it's got. If you're outside of the city, it's got some dark sun kind of vibe going on to it. If you're in the city, it is, uh, like I said, techno-magical, so there's a, there's a lot of steampunky elements to it. Um, and the same is true for the Undercity, where the Pathfinder stuff takes place. Uh, there are some secrets I haven't revealed about the Undercity yet, but it's basically where the Collegium exiled a whole bunch of people, again, X number of years ago. I haven't set the timeline firmly yet. Uh, but... It's it's got a steampunkish vibe to it, but it's in the middle of a desert, hence the name Sand and Steam. Excellent. Now, is this going to be in the end a, a printed book and everything, and I, be in I stores would, hopefully? I, I would love for that to be the case. Uh, I was actually in the last few days, I've been uh, sort of pinging people in the RPG publishing world that I've that I've come to know uh, over the last couple uh, gaming conventions that I've been to. And finding out sort of what costs look like for printing and for people to do layout and editing and art and all that good stuff. Right now, my rough plan is to put out some initial, very bare bones, mostly text PDFs that I would be laying out myself mm-hmm. just to get them in drive through RPG, get some, some, some more presence known for the, for the setting. And then... Once I feel it's picked up enough steam, no pun intended, (laughs) I'd love to do a Kickstarter for each of the books, uh, the Pathfinder book, the Savage Worlds book, and the Fate book, and try and get some really solid artists, get, you know, some an excellent layout person to lay the whole thing out for me, uh, and get a a really good RPG editor to, to polish up my, my prose because I write pretty well, but I'm not perfect by any stretch of the imagination and i'd like this to be a really really good product but it takes money to do that so yeah. uh kickstarter is is a very good way to get that done if you approach it properly and it's my hope that i will have a solid enough base of content underneath me to approach it properly when the time is right i just wish right now i knew when the time would will become right because i yeah. don't excellent well now that we know who you are let's go ahead and move on to the news All right, first up, this one was actually pointed to me by Enrique of Newbie DM. He found on Amazon Menzo Branzan, City of Intrigue. It's a hardcover book that's coming out from Wizards. Um, it looks somewhat similar in style to uh, to their Neverwinter set, setting. Yeah, it does. Yeah, um, it's a hardback book, so it's not doesn't look like it's going to have maps and well and it may have a single map but it's not going to be it's not going to be like any other box sets i don't believe yeah yeah i don't it seems like with the uh if if neverwinter is indicative of where wizards is going forward with their their setting products that they're going to be putting out very well done uh but smaller setting books Mm -hmm. what i find interesting is that they chose menza branzan which is another forgotten realms city and, and not just another Forgotten Realms city, but one that a lot of people, because of its connection to Drist and whatnot, might even feel beaten to death. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's a, it's a, it's 
their second book that is that is related to Drist because even Neverwinter that yeah. was originally Drist. So, yep. um, and then they've got the Legend of Drist book and everything. I'm not sure that what I would have preferred to see was perhaps Sharn. Yeah, it it, would, it seems like it would make sense. They they covered it in the Eberron campaign guide. Yes, but I would like to see maybe a, a book on Sharn rather than this book that's kind of limited on who's going to be able to go there. If you're a, if you're not drow, you're dead. Mm. So yeah, that's uh, unless, you know, we're in for a change in attitude from the drow. I don't know. I, that true. would that'd be a pretty major departure though for, for, for drow to suddenly, you know, begin welcoming people with tea and crumpets. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, maybe they'll just have a, mag- a first level magical item in there that'll make you look like a drow so that they can <laughs> easily pass that off. I don't know. I'm not, I haven't picked up the Neverwinter's um, book. I've wanted to, but I haven't. Um, the Forgotten Realms isn't, isn't my setting of choice. Mm-hmm. Um, so I haven't picked it up, but. Um, well, I was lucky enough to get uh, actually a review copy of it. I also write for a, a blog called Troll in the Corner and. I was pretty impressed. Now, I haven't played 4E actively since uh, I think the very first Adventurer's Vault was the most recent release when I played my last session of 4E. Okay. So it's been a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the Neverwinter book was was really well put together. It seemed to reflect the the flavor of the changes in the realms mm-hmm. from 3rd from edition realms to 4th very well. And, and more than, than anything else, it gave a lot of really, really good plot hooks and a lot of really good detailed NPCs and ideas for you to be able to use. Um, if you wanted to pick it up and not run 4th edition with it, you could probably do so because it's, it's pretty rich. So if they do that kind of thing with Men's Baranzin, it could be a pretty good product, but I mean, the concerns you brought up are are real ones, and you know, mm. the drow are are, are mean. <laughs> yeah, they're known for for sacrificing people. You yeah, know, while they're still alive, and they're slightly xenophobic, and that yeah. really, that really <laughs> doesn't make for a good. You know, let's go play in this these these people's playground. Yeah, you know? and and the likelihood that you're even going to make it to Mesobranzan before you get killed by all the other creatures of the Underdark. You know, it's yeah. The, the the Underdark has has for for the Forgotten Realms or for the Forgotten Realms, I should say, long been the okay. Well, you think you're big and bad? Go underground. Mm-hmm. You know, it it's been one of the places where no matter how powerful you are, there's something down there that can mess with you. Mm-hmm. It's a nice it's nice that you can do that instead of having to send play, players into the plains. Yeah, that you can send just send them underground, and you you're still in the world, but. Mm-hmm. It's a very, very different world. It is a very different world. And I guess maybe for that reason, I, I'll find it interesting to see what they do with the mm-hmm. Men's Baranzin setting book because it it could be a very – there's a lot of potential there. But it seems like they're – at least just based on the history of the race that occupies Men's Baranzin and the city itself – with and, and this is true with a lot of things for for fourth edition, I guess. There's a lot of history hanging around these places, mm-hmm. and reinterpreting that history can go well or poorly. It's it's rarely, if ever, a a middle of the road proposition. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that's I think that's about it for a discussion on that. Um, yeah, because I don't. I, 
it'll be interesting to see how it turns out, but I'm not really holding my breath for it. I, I, I find it interesting that they've decided to sort of hitch their wagon to the Forgotten Realms. Exactly, yeah. On a, on a pretty permanent basis. I don't think we're mm-hmm. going to see a Dark Sun book coming out. I don't think we're going to see an Eberron book coming out. We're surely not going to see a revival of an older setting like Planescape or Dragonlance. So, mm-hmm. you know, I think it's, it's, it's the realms are bust until we get a new edition. Exactly. Which is disappointing because I'd like to see – I would love to see just one book of yeah. um, of Dragonlance. Dragonlance yeah. is a, and it's a it's a really old, cliched, very, very, very 80s setting. But, but it's, it's the it's, first fantasy world that yeah. I ever experienced. It's our old and cliched setting. Very <laughs> exactly. You know, that's, yeah, I, I'm a huge, huge Dragonlance fan. Um, you know, even when in third edition, when the, the dragons stopped breathing chlorine breath, I was like, what? Yeah. No, no, that, that's not how that works. Yeah. So, yeah, anyway. <laughs> I'm actually I've considered in the past running a fourth edition game of uh of Dragons of Autumn Twilight and everything like that using you know, making up the the heroes as fourth edition versions would, of them and running it, them. Well also it'd be a very robust place to explore themes. Oh yeah, absolutely. So anyway, before we continue waxing nostalgic, we should <laughs> <laughs> Um let's go ahead and talk about the this Pathfinder beginning Pathfinder role playing game beginner box. Yeah. Uh, big release from from Paizo, uh, sort of a, not quite along the lines of D&D Essentials because it's not a re-imaging of the system so much as it is a slimmed down, very, very well-presented version of the same system that's in the core book. Mm-hmm. And it looks gorgeous, um, the stuff yeah. that I've seen for it. Um, they've got the the paper miniatures in there, which come with their own little stands. Um, they look pretty robust, and all four of the heroes you can now buy for twelve bucks. You can get plastic versions of them. Yeah. So it looks it looks really really sharp. Um, everybody that I everybody that I've talked to has really enjoyed it. I've I've hinted here and there that I'd really like it for Christmas. Mm. On Amazon, it's only twenty three bucks, so you, it's. It's, it's a lot def- cheaper than. Oh, it's definitely affordable. I mean, you get the first five levels of Pathfinder for twenty three bucks on the GM side, the player side, the whole thing. So yeah. yeah, exactly. And and I've always been of the belief that the the first few levels are are really the sweet spot of any role playing game. They say seventh level for third edition, but um, but I've found that you know just even the starter players um, you can really make very interesting. Um, choices with them. I think I mentioned on the first episode that um, with my with my current group, we're playing fourth edition, and I wanted to give these starter players at first level the most epic campaign I could, mm-hmm. so that you don't have to have massive amounts of hit points and be doing tons of stuff to do really cool things. Yeah, and, I, uh, I'm a I'm a huge fan of that idea, by the way. Excellent. Um, so the, I think with this. With this thing where you can only play the first five levels, that's just fine. You mm-hmm. tweak the levels of the monsters, you you lower their defenses and their attacks, and you can have them fighting ancient red dragons. And if, you, if your players won't be any of the any of the wiser unless they're really really experienced at the system, but just tell them to ignore it. <laughs> yeah, um, it, it's it's a really really good uh, introductory presentation of. I mean, obviously, I'm 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 working on you know, stuff for Pathfinder myself. So obviously I endorse the system, but, Mm -hmm. um, 
anything that eases the the uh, entry level to an RPG system, I don't care what system you're talking about, RPGs are complex beasts. <laughs> so mm-hmm. if you can make it easier for someone to, to sort of grok the system, then that is all for the better. Exactly. And they they've been they've been winning converts left and right. Brian Patterson of D Twenty Monkey mm-hmm. uh, has recently started up a a Pathfinder campaign, and he that's due to the beginner box. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's and his comic is is very fourth edition heavy. Um, well, not not much longer. I've from what he said on Twitter. Yeah. So and, he, he's actually going to be switching the system in, in the in the comic over to Pathfinder as well. Oh, I didn't see that. That's excellent. Yeah. Cool. And then uh, also the guys over at Penny Arcade, they've, there's been a, a, a comic series with them where um, Gabe, one of the characters, has been having trouble with his 4th edition game. And only today um, in the comic, they revealed that he's going to be switching over to Pathfinder in that. So Yeah, and in the, uh, in the news post that accompany those comics, uh, Tycho has been talking about that whole transition and, and what it means and the history of the group and Gabe talked, Gabe actually put a post up about it today. And, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. Um, I'm, I'm of the mindset that, that both of the major game systems for E and Pathfinder can coexist harmoniously. Mm-hmm. Um, cause I think they both have some very interesting things to offer. Uh, but it is, it's either interesting or telling. I don't quite know which that, well-known people in the industry that really enjoyed fourth edition and cut their teeth on fourth edition to a degree with, especially with Gabe are now finding that same initial excitement with Pathfinder. What I found is that I don't think that people are so much leaving fourth edition in droves as much as these people have been playing fourth edition since fourth edition came out. Mm -hmm. And I think what, what they're reaching is the burnout period. They're They're finally getting to the point where they're just, they're just tired of running the same thing. They want to run something different and yet familiar. So by sort of falling back on something that's a little bit, it's familiar in that it's the D20 system. Um, it's different in the Pathfinder. I'm actually doing the exact same thing. I When my when it looked like my Godfell Stone campaign was falling apart, we just recently decided that we're going to keep playing with it. Um, I set up a an online Pathfinder game that we're hopefully going to be starting this weekend. And it was because I looked at Pathfinder and said, you know, I, I actually really like what they did with the system. I hadn't looked at Pathfinder at all before, um, but it wasn't until everybody started talking about it that I, I looked back and it, I started realizing that there's some really good stuff in there. I like what they've done. Um, I like that uh, they've, they've taken some of the flaws that I had with the magic system of 3rd mm-hmm. edition that, that 4th edition fixed. And they've gone with that. Um, for example, all zero-level spells are basically at-will spells yep. in Pathfinder, which I think is fantastic because I mm-hmm. think you do need to have – you don't need to have your wizard sitting there plotting out how many times he needs to take Magic Missile because after he's used it one time, he's never going to be able to use it again. He yeah, should be I able mean, to your, continue your, to use it. Your 20th-level Archmage does not need to worry about casting Prestidigitation or Mage Hand. Exactly. That just happens. Exactly. And and there's and I don't think there's ever there should be a problem with that because it's basically just it's basically just shooting a bow and arrow without the bow and arrows. Mm-hmm. So there's there's no difference between him doing that and an archer firing a bow. And an archer shouldn't have to worry about firing a bow at, at 20th level. So no, not at all. So I yeah, like you, what they've done with it. Yeah, and you mentioned the the sort of growing up with the game thing with fourth edition, and the same thing happened to a degree with third edition, except that there wasn't really. 
a majorly viable alternative. Mm-hmm. So you've got people that started with fourth edition and like I said, the last fourth edition game I played, I, I was running one just before I stopped playing and you know, I had the core three books and the adventurers vault and there were a lot of options within those. Well, now there are much like there were a third edition, a metric crap load of options yeah. available. I mean, a ton of options, racial class options, more than I think I could wrap my head around. Mm. So if you started in that environment where it was, you know, limited options and you keep going and going and suddenly there are all these books that, let's face it, when a company releases a book, it's sort of assumed, hey, this is official now, we have to use it. Even though that's not necessarily the case and the GM could limit it, there's that implicit idea. Mm -hmm. So you grow up and you get, you're like, wow, I'm, we're at epic levels and there are so many things that can happen. As Gabe, as Gabe said, he said they're level 20, 21. They've been collecting mm-hmm. magical stuff for three years. They're playing yeah. Dungeons and Dragons, but they're so powerful. They don't care about either of those things. Mm-hmm. But if then, if you're like, well, you're burnt out on that. You want another option. And there's, there's something like a Pathfinder out there where you can go, okay, well, these are the books that exist in the Pathfinder ecosystem right now. And you can say with a lot more uh, a, a more definitive tone as the GM, here are the books that exist. We are going to use this book mm-hmm. because it's not that new release. We must, we must use it mindset. So you can, you can customize your game a little bit more. It's a psychological thing, I think, because I know when I played third edition, I had to buy all the books. Oh yeah. I owned so many third edition books that I never used. Yeah, me too. And i and I ended up at one point about, a year and a half ago, I said, you know what? I'm never going to play third edition again. And I started getting rid of a bunch of the books. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing is that I'm not, I don't feel bad now that I've gotten rid of them. And now that I want to play some Pathfinder because the books that I got rid of were just the bloat. I mm-hmm. kept the ones that are the good ones that I could still use for Pathfinder that I would want to use for Pathfinder. Yeah. But it's, it's all a matter of getting rid of the bloat. Um, yep. The nice thing that I do like about fourth edition is that they, because they have such a limited Ability, people have such a limited ability to use the, the GSL. You mm-hmm. don't have a ton of third-party books, so, meaning you don't have a, a ton of third-party crap. Yeah. Um, so the books that I have are just official books. Yeah, it, it's, it's, it's interesting as well with the – I mean because Pathfinder is OGL. Hmm. There's not that ridiculous glut of useless OGL content with Pathfinder either. There yeah, are publishers who are doing it. Well, they learned, They saw what happened. Mm-hmm. Everyone saw what happened with third edition, and you get crap like the Book of Erotic Fantasy, <laughs> and you know that's sort of like that's the high water mark for crap when mm-hmm. it comes to, to to OGL books. And companies have learned well. We really don't need to do. There doesn't need. There don't need to be four dwarf books. Exactly, and you I know, think that it, a lot of people have. have those the books that have come out have been PDFs, so they're easy mm-hmm. to ignore for, for your group. You aren't going into the game store and being and being like, "Man, I have to get this yeah. third dwarf book now." <laughs> yeah. So I, I mean, whether or whatever I guess I should say whatever the future holds for for either either brand either rule system, it's really interesting to see what each company is is doing with it because. There's really good stuff coming out from both. Absolutely. So. 
Yeah. So I think there's just one more uh, piece of news that I had. Um, they, the, that's going to be edited. Um, Cobalt Quarterly has a special program right now. Um, actually, I don't think it's, it's not a limited time program. Um, it's a way to sponsor soldiers and in my case, sailors. You can go out there and you can you can pay for a subscription, and uh, a soldier, sailor, marine, or airman can sign up for themselves, or you can sign up, or you can sign uh, a service member up yourself uh, to receive a year subscription. Um, I found out about this on on uh, Memorial Day, okay. and I went out and I signed up for it. I had heard there was a backlog of of people waiting to have somebody else um, support them. But within a week I got a message and um, I've actually got a, an annual subscription, one year subscription to Cobalt quarterly now. Um, Thanks to, thanks to somebody out there who um, wanted to support um, service members in case anybody listening to didn't know I'm, I'm in the Navy. We'll be, I'll be getting out in June, but uh, so yeah, it's thanks to, thanks to people supporting their troops. Now you have troops, who are gamers are now getting Cobalt Quarterly magazine, um, and I got my first one in the mail just the other day. It's it's fantastic. Um, Cobalt Quarterly has come a long way since the first few issues, which mm-hmm. which I had gotten a hold of. So um, if you if you want to support troops out there, you can definitely go out and uh, and get the. Um, I'll put it in the show notes. The name of it I can't remember at the moment. The name of the program. Um, um, but, I think I just found it, actually. It looks like the uh, Adopt-A-Soldier Holiday Contest. Yes, that's it. Um, but it also came with a little sticker um, mm-hmm. with a cobalt on it. It says Small But Fierce. Which it is came, pretty pretty awesome. <laughs> yeah, it came with a military patch um, that one would wear on your uniform. Um, that's It's the exact same thing. It's a cobalt that says Small But Fierce. And if I could get away with putting it on my uniform, I would. <laughs> that Yeah, um, I mean, that would be... I, I assume that's not uh, appropriate for a dress uniform, but that's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, um, I know with the army, they a lot of their stuff is all Velcro on, so you could easily, mm-hmm. um, you know, put Velcro on the back of it and, and stick it on if you're uh, if you've just gotten out or you know in your off time if you're going out paintballing with your buddies or something like that. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So um, definitely go out there and um, check it out, and if you want to um, provide your support. I know that we all appreciate it. So, yeah, thank that's you. a very cool program. Mm-hmm. And at this point, we're going to go ahead and go on to our main topic. So, we're going to pause here for a word from our sponsor. Yeah, gaming for me uh, really solidified when I was in college and played a game of Ninjas and Super Spies using Palladium rules. And we had a 12 hour session where I was GMing, and eight of those hours was a car chase. How we managed to run for eight hours is beyond me, and I have no idea. I don't think I could do it again if I have tried. We had more fun laughing our butts off than anything else. So for me, gaming is friends, good rules, and a good story. And, uh, yeah, without it, I'd be a much boring, more boring person. Uh, my name is Brian Fitzpatrick, and I am the Gamerati. Gamerati.com. It's good to be a gamer. Welcome back. Today, our topic is going to be realism in role-playing games. Uh, how how realistic should your role-playing game really get? Um, this topic was sort of brought up due to 
there's a new role-playing game out called Realms of Atlantasia, I believe is the pronunciation of it. That's as uh, close as I can get, so... <laughs> yeah. There's a, a Canadian guy uh, named John Holland who apparently has been working on this book for 18 years. Um, it's a 544-page book that he calls the Game Master's Bible. Um, it's a huge tome. It's, I think, about $44, and it's in black and white that is self-published, mm-hmm. um, so it's not through any any game company or anything. Uh, but his thought was that none of the role-playing games out there were realistic. Um, he's got a a really interesting take on how what he means by realism. Um, things like when you're firing arrows in the rain, you get negatives to it. Um, mm-hmm. Armor rusts and your ho- horses die if they're not cared for. Um, it seems like a lot, a lot of bookkeeping. The the character sheet itself is, I believe, eight pages. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's there's a lot to it. Um, what I noticed is that there was a lot of people who, on Twitter, just began openly mocking him, which I thought was was kind of ironic that the, the geeks were mocking the geeks. Oh, um, we, 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 we set ourselves in the case very easily. Oh yeah. Um, so, so I, but I, uh, I sent him a message and I'm going to be uh, interviewing him sometime soon for the blog. And so I wanted to sort of talk about is, is the problem that people have that they think that he's gone overboard and is too realistic. Um, what do you think is the, is the, is the root cause of that? Um, I think it it might have something to do with the the time frame that it took him to complete the work, mm-hmm. and the the way he approached it. Because with as with a lot of big fantasy world projects like this, um, I'm thinking like Realms of Cinnabar from way back. Uh, in the early 80s, I, I believe that was, it's before my time as a gamer, but I've heard about it, that it's this reaction against D&D. And any time an author positions themselves as reacting against D&D, it, it just doesn't go terribly well. Like, that's not a great starting point for a conversation with the tribe, as it were. Yeah. So there's that. And ultra-realism, I think... It appeals to a very select set of people mm-hmm. because it's yeah. very, very difficult to pull off smoothly. Yeah. Um, and, uh, otherwise, it's it's so so bloody much bookkeeping. <laughs> you know, if I mean, even the thought of an, an eight-page character sheet, I realize that if you really want to get down and dirty with a Pathfinder character or a four E character, yes, you can have pages upon pages of, of, of stuff that you can use for your character. But when it comes down to it, to play the game, you need, I think you can probably run both games with a half sheet if you really wanted to. Yeah. And if you want to get super tight on it, because you know a lot of stuff, you got the rules up in your brain pan, you can go an index card. Absolutely, yeah. But doesn't sound like that's the case with, with this game. Yeah, this one sort of needs those eight pages. Yes. Yeah. With with my group, um, as, let's go ahead and talk about the the realism of it. Mm-hmm. Um, we ignore weight penalties. Yeah. Um, we ignore um, any type of 
I mean, we we bear. I I don't think I remember the last time that they ever ate the rations that they had. Yeah. Um, they don't mark those down. Um, things like that. And actually, I was making a, a Pathfinder character with my wife the other night, and she went to the back of her character sheet and put big X across her uh, encumbrance. Across her encumbrance, and I said, "What are you doing?" She said, "I'm getting rid of all the crap we don't need." <laughs> she she hates the idea of encumbrance because she says it's just not important. She doesn't want to waste her time with it. Sure. Um, however, at the same time, I would love to run a campaign that where encumbrance and making sure you're well fed and that your horses are well fed is an essential part of the campaign. Um, I love a campaign where the archer actually had to pay attention to how many arrows he was using because we don't even do that. I, um, I agree completely and wholeheartedly, but you have to have player buy-in to do that. Exactly. That And that's the big thing, is if your players don't care, if they don't even care how many days in the week there are in whatever your campaign <laughs> setting is, asking them to worry about whether or not they have iron rations is ludicrous. Oh, yeah. And you not only need player buy-in, you need, you need DM buy-in mm-hmm. because – even I like I yes I would love to run that. Would I? I I don't know because it's not only bookkeeping for them. That means that I'm going to need to make sure that I'm doing bookkeeping as well because I can't ask them to do something that that I'm not doing. Right. Um, so that means that I'm going to have to start keeping track of how many arrows these kobolds have that they're fighting. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a it's a tricky situation. Um, I think that some games handle it a lot better than others. Mm-hmm. Uh, fourth edition really glosses over. Um, it has rules for encumbrance and you getting slowed down from your armor and things like that. But for the most part, the only thing that the players pay attention to is the lowering of your speed. They don't mm-hmm. pay attention to much to it having negative effects on your skills and stuff like that. And, um, and even in fourth edition, that's abstracted, right? They don't yeah. think of it in terms of feet. It's how many squares can I move? Exactly. Um, so whereas and and a Every single person who happens to be a human is running six squares. Where if mm-hmm. you want to talk about realism, you're going to have the person's speed modified by, say, their dexterity if you want to get um, get more realistic with it. Um, so I think that with, with D&D, as this guy pointed out with his problem with D&D, is, is everything is abstracted, um, whether mm-hmm. it's... Whether it's first, whether it's zeroth edition, all the way up through fourth edition, um, everything's highly abstracted. It's not meant to be realistic. Right. Um, possibly the the one of the crappiest sessions I ever had was I was being taught by one of the Steve Jackson Men in Black mm-hmm. how to play uh, how to play GURPS. And he sat me down. He helped me. He wor- worked my way through making this knight in full plate mail. He was going to be a, an awesome combatant. And he had him going down this road. And suddenly he was ambushed by three bandits who weren't wearing any armor. They were just a couple of poor guys carrying some rusty daggers. Mm-hmm. My knight in full plate mail on horseback got murdered by three bandits. <laughs> yep. Because realistically, if you were to get ambushed and you're trying to you're trying to fight three guys off while you're mm-hmm. moving around in your clunky armor, you're going to get killed. Yep. Because they are going to tackle you and hold you down and stab you in the soft bits. Exactly. And so that was the, and that was it. That was my, my character was dead. And we spent like two hours making that character because GURPS, you'd have to take your time making your character. Mm-hmm. 
and he was dead before I knew it. And, and I realized that I was probably never going to play GURPS ever again. Um, (laughs) and as he explained to me later, you, you can, there, there are rules you can leave out of GURPS to help make it a lot more streamlined and easy, but people want heroic characters. And if you make things, if you make things realistic, well, you're not going to have heroic characters. (laughs) I think you can, but the problem is, like when you were describing that scenario to me in, in GURPS, the the thing that struck me, my immediate response was, if the Game Master knew that it, w- it was that deadly, why did he put you in that scenario? Yeah. You know, that, that that's that's an obvious blind spot. That, that smacks to me of someone who loves the system for the sake of the system mm-hmm. going... I'm going to show you just how deadly this system is. Yeah. And if you love this, like I love this, then you are going to buy into this and you're going to be like, Oh, what? My character died. I'm going to make another one right now. Yeah. And ew, that's a special kind of gamer right there. So realism, the level of realism, it takes a, a, a lot of work on the part of the players and the GM to, to pull it off. You have to be on the same page and as a GM, you have to know that unless you know your characters are simulationists where they want to make sure that if they get nicked by a dagger that a bandit is carrying or they get a bite from a rat, that that wound could become septic and they could lose their arm in you know XD10 days, you know, and, and that's okay with them. And they're like, yes, I'm thriving in this realistic world, mm-hmm. you know. Realism is kind of brutal. <laughs> yeah. Reality is kind of brutal at times. <laughs> and that's kind of why we play games is, is, you know, at least in part to escape from that. How do you uh, handle realism in sand and steam? It's an interesting question because, and I mean, whenever the discussion of realism comes up, I immediately go, there's magic <laughs> like my that's my initial reaction which is not exactly an intellectual response it's it's more of a gut you know don't worry about it so much um there are concerns of realism that i'm taking into account when i'm designing the system like i'm i'm uh, i've read a book called or in the process of reading a book called guns germs and steel that talks about how different cultures have developed in different ways throughout the history of the world mm-hmm. in a very I mean, looking at the nitty gritty, why are people in Papua New Guinea not the same as people in England? You know, like real n- nothing to do with their their race, but everything to do with their exposure to certain things in the chronology of their the history of their culture. Mm-hmm. Because I want when when you get into the game and you're you're reading about the the different levels of the Undercity, for example, and there's the more civilized surface level, then there's the the lowest level, which is much more natural and wild, and there are, are it's it's much more tribal, and then there's that place in between where those two things mix. I want you to be able to identify with that. So I'm trying to make the cultures and the the way that they've developed as realistic as possible. That said, when you get into the game, as a GM, my default way of running a game is to go by the rule of cool. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. If if the Pathfinder rulebook says you cannot do that thing that you wish to do, and I as a GM am sitting there and I go, that sounds awesome. I'm going to find something, some way for you to roll that D20. 
and see whether or not you can do it. Because I want the players to feel awesome at what they're doing. Mm-hmm. So I'm go- I'm when it comes to the actual design of the scenarios for Sand and Steam and the adventures and the plot hooks, I want to design it so you're feeling you're, you're playing in a world that that feels it real has some vers- verisimilitude to it. You're like, yes, this place in my imagination could actually exist to a degree. Mm. But when you get to the actual running of the game, I am I'm not a simulationist. I don't really care what your encumbrance is. <laughs> I you've told me what your character looks like. I see your character has a strength of 12 in in 4th edition or Pathfinder terms. You cannot pick up that boulder. Yeah. Okay, you can't do that. However, you can carry three great swords. You can only swing one of them, but the other two can be strapped to your back. I don't care. Yeah. You know, it looks that's, awesome. <laughs> yeah, that's fantastic. What you you want to have, you know, 12 daggers hidden on your person? It's going to be very difficult for you to use the facilities when the time comes, but that is really cool. <laughs> you know, so that's that's the approach that that I want to take with Sand and Steam. And, I mean, any game session that I run, I mm-hmm. want everyone to have a good time. And if that means, hey, we're going to worry about the nitty gritty. Okay, sure. I will roll mm-hmm. with that. That's fine by me. But in my experience, most players don't. They just yeah. they they want to have the spotlight shine on their character and have time to be awesome. Absolutely. And reality does not necessarily have a place in that. <laughs> That's true. My dad, uh, I was in the, this was, I'm sure I've talked about it plenty of times before on the blog and on, on Twitter and stuff, but I've got a, a novel that I've been working on since I was about 10. So it's, this book's been like 16 years in the making and it's, it's completely different than what it originally was. But I remember when I was about 16 or 17 and I came to my dad, who's um, previously, he used to be a, a math and a science teacher. Um, he double majored and, and I would, and I came to him and said, I want in my world that it's been night for the past um, 15 years, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, it was due to uh, basically this, this one day the sun was blotted out and nobody can see the sun at all. And um, this was before, I, I can't remember the name of that. There was a Savage World setting, uh, Evernight. Before yeah. Evernight ever came out, I had mm-hmm. I had had this idea, and my dad said, "Okay, well, then all the trees should die, and all the plants should die, mm-hmm. and everyone's going to be really cold. Everybody's going to be really cold, and <laughs> you're going to have um, mushrooms growing to replace them instead. Um, that's so that's how you can have people eating. And I I thought I don't want people to be eating mushrooms. I want there to be trees. I want there to be grass. It's just always nighttime. Mm-hmm. And my dad said, but how did that happen? How was everything still growing? And the only response was because magic. Yeah. A wizard <laughs> did it. Yeah. If you're going, if you're going to, you're, you're going to have to look, especially with a fantasy game at the levels of magic versus real reality. And you're going to have to just write things off as because magic, um, science fiction is a bit different. Um, if something like that happens, you are going to have to sort of explain why that is. Um, but it's the same. It's because, um, as David Eddings said, science fiction, they show you a, a watch and they then have to explain the history of 
of timekeeping and how exactly a watch works. Fantasy, they just tell you what time it is. Mm-hmm. So yeah, and, it, it really depends on the genre. Yeah, that's and that's uh, something that's interesting about the the undercity portion of Sand and Steam that I'm working on is it's all underground. Mm-hmm. It's a fully contained environment. And when I first came up with the idea, I came up with the idea much like your 15 years of night because, wow, that's cool. Like mm-hmm. there's, there's, there's neat stories that could be told there. That's really sweet. And, and I mean, because I don't want people to cry foul and I don't just want to hand wave it, I'm having to think, okay, how are they eating? Where, mm-hmm. where are their light sources? Which fortunately with steampunk, you can put, you can go gaslight and you can have things that, that, that take the place of the sun. And there are very easy conclusions I can reach as to how that stuff works. But, but yeah, those, those are things that you do have to at least give a cursory nod to. Absolutely. Because uh, otherwise your players are going to ask, someone's going to ask that question. Mm-hmm. Why haven't <laughs> and, the trees died? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and you know, it's, it's something you, you definitely need to, to take into account. Yeah. Now, there, there are some role-playing games that have tried to deal with realism besides um, GURPS dealing with, you know, a, a knight uh-huh. getting slain by a couple of peasants. Um, Hackmaster, not the current edition, but the previous edition, it was done sort of more over the top and sort of meant to be kind of a bit of, of a parody. Um, I think actually that was part of their, their licenses. They were allowed to use um, the second edition rules, but it had to be jokey. So they had thousands upon thousands of tables, but... Uh, in chapter nine of the of the game master guide, um, they have the climbing success modifiers, where they have <laughs> a huge table that is all the different things that are going to modify your success at climbing. So if there's abundant handholds, you get a plus forty. If there's a rope and wall, it's fifty five percent. If it's if the surface is inclined ninety five to one hundred and twenty degrees, that's a plus thirty. If it's greater than one hundred twenty degrees, it's plus sixty. If mm-hmm. it's less than sixty five degrees, it's negative ninety. It depends on what type <laughs> of armor you're wearing, and there's five, there's six different types of armor there. Your character race modifies your success at climbing. Mm-hmm. Um, a dwarf gets a bonus. Gnomes and gnomelings get negatives. Things like that. Um, your encumbrance is modified. The surface condition of the of the wall is modified. Um, there's a whole resolution of failed climb attempts. Um, so there's, a, but so they deal with it by sort of overdoing it. Um, yeah. With, with tongue firmly in cheek, but still, yes. but if, if you're looking for realism there, it is, it can be found in, um, in other role-playing games. Um, I wonder if that's an example of, of where the line gets drawn between being realistic and being pedantic. Yeah, because there 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 comes a point, um, and Hackmaster, like we said, tongue in cheek, but there comes a point where your presentation of all the minutia, mm-hmm. it's not realistic. It's just that guy sitting in the corner. What? Well, it's actually like this. You know, it, it's it's X, Y, and Z that you didn't take into account. Mm-hmm. And in real and everyday life, which if you're shooting for realism in a game, let's assume that's what you're going for. Do we think about that stuff? Do I sit down on my computer and I factor in the odds that I'm going to be able to turn on my monitor successfully? <laughs> you know, I mean, do I do I worry about having to go up and down the stairs? 
you know, there, there, there's random occurrence that happens. I mean, we have a lot of pets here. I could trip over our cat, but <laughs> we don't worry about a lot of stuff in real life. And it seems like when people go for ultra realism in games, they start worrying about everything you could possibly worry about mm-hmm. rather Absolutely. than, rather than disregarding the things that as human beings, we disregard. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Cause you shouldn't have to roll for cat. No, (laughs) unless unless there is a cat, then it's like, okay, well, you know the cat, the cat knows you, does the cat like you? Yes. Are you carrying something? Okay, you might need to roll for cat, because you're not watching the cat, and the cat smells food. I mean, that's realistic to me, and that I could accept, maybe. But even then, does a a player want, does a player want to see if they die because they trip over the cat? A player wants to... And die in a big shoot 'em up. They don't, you know, they the don't want The only time I can think where it's acceptable for a player to die of cat, as the example was going, <laughs> is in a game of paranoia. Yes. Because if you're playing paranoia, then that kind of, pe- of pedantry mm-hmm. is hilarious. Yes. That's exactly where that kind of stuff should come from when it yes. is done for humorous intent. Or, uh, because, it, yeah. It, go ahead. You, Oh, means you go. <laughs> I was just going to say in Call of Cthulhu, um, the the insanity rules. Mm-hmm. They everybody's sanity is really, really um, kind of made of glass in yeah. Call of Cthulhu, and but which makes sense for you're supposed to be playing characters who nothing strange has ever happened to them ever, and suddenly they're seeing uh, the great old ones mm-hmm. standing before them and. Um, you know, if they're suddenly attacked by a, a Shoggoth. Yeah, you're gonna, you're probably gonna go insane from that. Yeah. Um, so it's 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 an, it's a similar idea. Or rolling for cat, Kobolds ate my baby. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and Kobolds ate my baby. There's a good chance you're gonna die from something ridiculous and stupid. But it's not because it's trying to be realistic. It's doing it because it's trying to kill you for stupid reasons. <laughs> yeah. There there are games in which the purpose is to die for stupid reasons and that then, then it's fun. Mm-hmm. Um, I imagine that great fun could be had with an ultra realistic game. If you played it with that intent, mm-hmm. the thing is at least from the tone that I've gotten with something like, uh, Atlantasia, Atlantasia, I just messed up the pronunciation again, <laughs> is that they're written with serious intent. You get people who who write things out of some, at least from my view, I don't wish to put to put words in anyone else's mouth, but a misguided view of fun. Are you familiar with the the Fatal RPG? Have you heard the tales of that? I, I have heard of Fatal, but not um, not too much about it. It is, in some ways, along the same lines, but taken to a sexually deviant side of things. Um, uh. there, there are STG tables in in the book, and it's been universally panned. And it, unfortunately, I think something like uh, Avantasia, there may be really good stuff there. I don't know, mm-hmm. but because it's got the one guy in his mom's basement for eighteen years vibe about it, and it's anti the establishment, you know or the establishment as it was 18 years ago, who knows what it's anti now. Yeah. It's, you're going to have the reactions that people have seen from it, uh, that, that you've seen people give to it. 
because it might be too realistic because it's trying too hard who knows yeah. it's a difficult it's a difficult proposition uh i i don't envy the gentleman who released it because his heart may be firmly in the right place and if it is poor guy because even his best effort would not have been good enough yeah exactly so i think that's uh I think that's about all for the topic. I think we've pretty much covered every role-playing game that's ever been made. And, uh, <laughs> Just about. Yeah. And uh, so what's your final thoughts on, on realism in games, yay or nay? Take time to be awesome is my final thought. Uh, whatever happens to be awesome for your group, that's what you should be doing. And if you don't know what's awesome for your group, you and your group need to sit down and talk about awesome for a little while. Some very, very good advice. Excellent. Well, once again, we draw to the point of our show where I really want to help people out with their campaigns. But um, once again, we haven't gotten any any emails or voicemails at all. So instead, um, I thought we'd sort of talk to one another and help each other out. Um, I just recently um, started back up my campaign with um, some modifications that are going to be needed, so we can talk about that. But uh, you've got a campaign that you're currently um, you've got going on. So let's talk about yours. Yeah. Um, I'm actually in the, the very beginning phases of planning for an eclipse phase, uh, okay. game that's coming up. Uh, we're going to be starting after the new year. We're finishing up a pathfinder game. That's actually going all the way to 20th level, which is really, really cool. Wow. Um, and we're, yeah, I, it was one of those situations where, the group that I'm playing with has always played D20 of some variety, 4th edition or Pathfinder. And Eclipse Face came out. A friend was excited about it. I picked it up. I thought it was cool. And I just said, hey, we could do this. And everybody just glommed on. Uh, everyone's really excited about it. Uh, but for me, it's really far outside of anything that I've ever done before. Um, aside from the fact that I've never run a percentile system, I'm not terribly worried about that piece. I've never run sci-fi. Okay. And Eclipse Phase is pseudo-hard sci-fi in the not-too-distant future. So there's a lot that could be taken into account. Now, do you want to give a brief little synopsis of what um, what that little hard, semi-hard sci-fi in the not-too-distant future entails? Like what the idea is behind the sure. role-playing game? Um, the idea is that in the timeline of the game, ten years ago, an event happened called The Fall, where these... Uh, rogue artificial intelligences called Titans decided for whatever reason to kick humanity's butt. Uh, Titan was a defense network that was activated that uh, actually bootstrapped itself into sentience, took a few days to analyze all of the informational networks on Earth and the immediate uh, parts of the solar system because hum uh, humanity had spread out, and then basically went to war with humanity for about a year and then for no reason that we could determine left. So, so kind of a combination of um, Skynet meets the Cylons. Yeah. Um, the the big uh, difference, though, is that humanity had reached a technological point where the human brain had been uh, able to be mapped and backed up and put into a new body. Oh, Okay. So even though only about 10% of humanity is left, that 10% is effectively immortal. Okay. Uh, most of the solar system is in a post-scarcity economy because there are cornucopia machines 
uh, that can make whatever you want as long as you're giving it the right materials. Mm -hmm. So humanity is at the greatest point of technological advancement that it's ever seen, and it's also 10 years away from the biggest uh, catastrophe it's ever been a part of. So, so sort of a, a transhuman? Yeah, exactly. Transhumanity is the is sort of the name of the game. Um, okay. Uh, so there are uplifted animals, octopi and apes and birds that you can actually be sleeved into. Uh, it's, it's a neat, neat setting. It takes place in this solar system and then other exosolar systems that are accessible by Pandora gates, which are basically jump gates that were left behind by the Titans. Oh, okay. And 10 years out, it's okay. Well, we can move on, but everyone kind of knows in the back of their minds that, it could all be taken away from them if the Titans decide to come back. Hmm. Um, and the default campaign uh, that the book suggests is everyone is a member of a, a clandestine group called Firewall that basically protects transhumanity from what they call X-threats. Anything that could threaten the existence of transhumanity, be it from transhumanity itself or beyond it. And okay. so the players can come from any walk of life, any background in the game world whatsoever – but they've been recruited by Firewall, and they carry out missions in and around the rest of their lives. Very cool. Yes, so you're, it's so you're amazingly gonna be running, cool. <laughs> so you're going to be running this game. And, yes. Um, what's your, uh, what are your concerns about running it, besides it, just, um, it being very different from previously? Honestly, and this, this may, may seem odd, my biggest concern is my players. Not that they are not going to be into the game, um, but almost that they're going to be too into the game. And, and you're not I. Be able to keep up? Exactly, because I game, especially with a couple folks who are really, really good with technology. And this is a game that begs to have technology integrated into the game sessions. Mm -hmm. So we're going to have a message board that's up. We're going to probably have an IRC chat room where we can chat with each other using in game handles mm -hmm. during the session, because you can do that. You can communicate instantly to anyone in the nearby in your nearby vicinity you know as, as long as the speed of light isn't delaying the communications you can talk to anyone immediately um so there are all these things and and one player in particular who is the most excited about it uh is he is actually programmed or is in the process of programming in i think using uh google apis of some type uh everyone in the game has a sort of a, a semi-sentient computer program that sort of lives in your head called your muse, that if you need to find something that sort of, you know, future Googles it for you and provides you with this information, it looks things up for you. He's actually writing a Siri-like program that you can interact with. Wow. Okay. <laughs> I, I, I just want to run a game. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and I, I applaud how into this he's getting. Yeah. I my, my, my biggest concern and I'm going to I'm going to address it with the group uh, before we start playing because I would be insane not to. I want to make sure that I'm going to be able to fulfill their expectations. Yeah. Because the game does have a ton of potential. Um, I've actually had to limit myself to reading just the core book for now. There are two additional books that are out that detail more parts of the solar system and some of the exoplanets. Okay. But the core book has so many plot hooks and there's so much terminology to be familiar with mm -hmm. that when I try, I read about two thirds of the core book, you're like, 
you know, to try and really grab it. And I went on to just skim the other two books and I found myself getting overwhelmed with information. Yeah. Um, so I, I need to make very sure that I'm not going to let these guys down because this is the first RPG aside from a D20 based game that they've ever played. Hmm. Yeah. That's, that's a tricky one. My, my first knee jerk reaction would be, um, send them to an exoplanet and then drop an EMP bomb on them so that they, all their technology is lost. <laughs> <laughs> but barring that um it's it's that's tricky um well my, my my first gm instinct with this the first thing that i want to do is mess with them yeah i, I want to especially for the player that he's i mean a month out he's got his character statted out he's got his backstory working I've seen parts of it. He's already emailed out to everybody. <laughs> the first thing I want to do is in the first session, I want to spend a little bit of time fulfilling his immediate desires along with everyone else's and saying, okay, well, look, I'm using your stuff. Please do not think I'm going to ignore your stuff because you, I mean, you put a lot of work into this. I don't want to deny that. And then I want to pull the rug out from underneath it. I actually have an idea that just came to me. Have you played I, much in the way of Portal? I have played Portal. I, I've played all of the first one. I need to play the second one. I've not done okay. so yet. I'm about halfway through the first one. And the way that um, the GLaDOS talks to you, what if you have... What if the player's muses have been corrupted? Get, or at least they get corrupted. So like you can have this happen you know, one or two sessions in. Um, and so they begin to get sort of weird responses from their muses. The information they ask for comes back not quite correct, but they don't realize that until they've acted on that. Mm -hmm. Um, You could have a really interesting thing of them trying to figure out, is the voice in my head really working in my best interest? Because for the rest of trans humanity, the muse is working in their best interest. So why would it suddenly not be? And you could, you could deal with a sort of, you're not people who, who hear voices in their head are in our society, not considered a sane in this society. They obviously are considered. If you, if you don't have amused and you have to look up stuff on the mesh, the internet and the in game terms on your own, Mm -hmm. And you're in conversation with someone and someone mentions this obscure musical reference and your muse doesn't just drop it into your brain so you can use it conversationally. You're actually viewed as being a little bit slow, a little yeah. socially inept. So then you have your um, – your fi- the firewall begins to sort of mistrust them because they're trying to recall information and it's not coming back right now. That there's obviously something wrong with them and you could sort of explore um, you know, when – when everybody else is what, how we would view people as insane. If they're suddenly aren't getting the right information, are they more insane than those who are insane? Um, what if, you know, what if the, what if they start believing that the information that they're getting is the correct information? Maybe that everybody else's muses are screwed up. You could even press, you could sort of, Wait, sort of even press well, that. Well, well, that's the, de- that's the default assumption of a player anyway, isn't it? Yeah. Like, so if you sort I'm of had impor- people, I mean, it's a, it's a meta thought. I'm the most important thing in the world, so everyone else must be wrong. 
Yeah, and if you sort of began to to play with that, where people started saying the wrong things and th- and everything, but it turned out that in the end they were the ones getting the wrong information. Um, you could really sort of explore that theme of what it means to to be getting the the wrong information and thinking that everybody else is the ones who are the, the crazy people. That is a fantastic idea, and there's even an organization in the game uh, that I can use to be doing this, to have, to mm-hmm. almost be experimenting on them. And you could have it be a um, – the, they always like to use this in science fiction uh, – a sort of biomechanical virus that they maybe acquire in the oh, course and of well, – Well, that's actually um, – there's a virus in the game called the Exurgent Virus, which is a leftover of the Titans mm-hmm. that is – all at once, a biological virus that can attack uh, organic vectors. It is a computer virus, so it can attack through informational vectors. And it is a nanovirus, so it can attack through mechanical vectors. Excellent. So you could and have it be, sort of be an offshoot of that. Yep. And it's it's the whatever you want it to be virus. It's the this is scary Excellent. stuff virus. So. Excellent. And if you have this organization that sort of maybe maybe you could have in the first mission they they find a derelict spacecraft. That um, it could be a it could be a derelict Titan spacecraft because it's only been ten years. So the oh you, yeah, there's Titan artifacts all a, over the place. Yeah, so they find one, they go to it, and everything seems normal. It's just there. There's no more. You could sort of build on the sort of haunted house idea. There's nothing quite in there, but it you make the players really uneasy, mm-hmm. um, and then they leave thinking that everything's fine. You could you could even give them something that they find so that they feel like it was important that they were there without mm-hmm. um, making them then wonder later on, well, why did, why did he have that opening session if we didn't get anything out of it? Um, and then have things begin to go wrong where the, then it turns out that the, that that virus was, was found on there. Mm-hmm. Um, it could be, it could be really, really interesting. Um, you could even do things where the, the muse puts them in, in directly into harm's way. Um, there's, you know, a big, huge, um, alleged that they have to jump or something, and the muse keeps saying, "No, you can make it. You'll be fine. You can make it." Mm-hmm. You know, prior prior to them realizing that their their muse is not quite right. Yeah, the the muse feeds them uh, telemetric uh, telemetric data that says, mm-hmm. "No, it's the the atmosphere is distorting your your vision. This is yeah. fine." Yeah, they make a jump, and they they end up finding themselves, you know, either clinging onto the edge of the building not anywhere close to land, to landing it or even, you know, falling to, uh, to whatever it is that's below, um, and hurting themselves. And, um, you can make that even part of a chase scene, you know, they lose, mm-hmm. they lose the person they're after because the information they've been getting is wrong. Yeah. What, what happens when one of your major links to, again, back to realism, to reality is feeding you faulty data. Exactly. What hap- what, what happens when your muse is the one that's schizophrenic? Yeah. I like this. I like this idea a lot. Do you have do you have a voice modulator of some kind? You can find you can sometimes find them at at, at toy stores. Mm-hmm. A, a little p- extra piece of advice would be because just like GLaDOS has that sort of off voice that's very modulated. If you yeah. had you know even go buy like the the Optimus Prime helmet that, that they have for kids mm-hmm. and remove everything except for the little voice box that you can talk through. So that the voice is just heavily modified. You could use that when talking to the players as their muse. 
Yeah, this is the and just guys, this is your muse voice. Yeah, and then exactly. suddenly, as the campaign goes on, that begins the voice they want to hear the least. Exactly when it starts telling them, and then and then you could even have something where because it's a old chip in their brain, they begin to not follow what the muse says. The muse doesn't like that and mm-hmm. begins, you know, sending electric jolts into their head mm-hmm. when they aren't doing what what it wants. Or are just, I mean, everyone has, uh, you know, built-in links to the mesh, like biologically. Uh, mm-hmm. They have, you can basically have a heads-up display right in your vision without any extra gear. Mm-hmm. And so the Muse can stop filtering this, you know, there because there are ads everywhere. They can stop filtering ads. Suddenly you're getting spam. You know, it's like what happens if your crafted version of the internet, right? Because we, the internet is what the mesh is. We all see what we want to see, right? We follow the people we want to follow on Twitter, mm-hmm. on G+. We, if we're on Reddit, we check out the subreddits we want to see and we, we craft our own view of the world based on the filter that we, that we set up. Well, what happens when your filter starts breaking down? Mm. And it starts navigating you to places you don't want to go. It yep. starts navigating you over to the WTF sub mm-hmm. subreddit. <laughs> yeah. You end up on 4chan. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So yeah, I think that's, I think that would be a, fa- a fascinating way to go. And I think you are extremely correct about that. And I'm going to begin putting that into place. Thank you. That was Absolutely. very helpful. So, uh, your game, uh, why don't yes. you give me a rundown of what's going on with you? Well, we had sort of, I'd sort of banned the idea of playing because the players had, some of the players just had really had no interest. It seemed, um, mm-hmm. they, some people weren't able to show up. It was just sort of falling apart. We ended up missing about a month of play. We were, we were supposed to be playing every single weekend. Mm-hmm. Um, and I said, you know what, I, I'm just going to go ahead and run one shots. Um, and it was around that time that I, that I decided that I was going to be, instead of re-enlisting in the Navy in June, I was going to go ahead and, um, and get out. So whereas previously the campaign that I had designed was going to be over the course of a few years, um, now suddenly if I was to continue it, it was only going to happen until June. Um, I decided that I was finally going to play, that we were going to continue to play because I ended up with my players basically begging me to, to not stop the campaign. And, um, I decided to, to start it back up, but now I'm, I've only got six months to complete the campaign. Um, initially the, the whole idea behind the campaign is that somebody has stolen the God fell stone, which is capable of slaying gods and has run off with it. My whole original plot spoilers mm-hmm. is that, um, there was these heroes that had stopped the God, stopped the, the previous thief of the God fell stone long in the past. And the players have sort of gotten to know these heroes through uh, like acquiring their magical items that left for them. I was going to have the players chase this guy, trying to figure out who it is that's stolen it all across the end tier Vale, find themselves in um, trapped in the city of sigil, which has mm-hmm. doors to anywhere. I love sigil. And re- yeah. And realize that this person has fled into the past and they realize that the thief is the original thief who had originally stolen it. And I would help them because I, I, I think it'd be difficult for any of them to figure out on their own that if there is doors to anywhere, there could be doors to any win playing Mm -hmm. off of, um, David Edding's redemption of Othelis, which had a similar idea. Yeah. Um, 
So if there's doors to anywhere, there's doors to any when. They could also go into the past. So using a lot of political intrigue and stuff, they are able to finally find a door to take them into the past. And they realize they're the original heroes who had stopped, stopped the original thief. However, according to history, those heroes took the Godfell stone and instead of destroying it, they took it for themselves and one by one fell to its corrupting power, kind of like the one ring. And mm-hmm. all of them became sort of shadows of their previous selves. So the heroes, after they finally confront the guy and, and take him down, are they going to, is history going to repeat itself or not? Are they going mm-hmm. to use that stone for evil or are they going to do what, what they should have done? all those years ago, which is actually right now <laughs> and, um, and destroy it. So that was the original plot, but now suddenly I don't have time to send them all over the place and a sigil and through the, through the planes, because I could end up with losing another month or so if people aren't able to make it for, for, mm-hmm. you know, a while. So I need to sort of figure out how to scale everything down, um, on a much smaller note, possibly even getting rid of the whole, su- the whole plot, backstory of the players actually being the original heroes i'm not i'm just not sure so do you have any ideas about how it is that i could scale it down um my instinct was with something like that because it sounds like a really awesome story Mm -hmm. my instinct is to do the story but do it in a a very different way um so you have your your first adventure, right? And you you kick everything off, and you you treat it like a one shot. So you you pack in. It's like a movie, right? It's got its own beginning, middle, and end, and then some some hooks that lead to the next to the next thing. And you find out what the players are planning on doing. You know, from there from then on, mm-hmm. when you get to the next session, you have fast forwarded time. And you said, okay, guys, here's what happened after the last adventure. You guys did this, 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 and this, and here we are. And this, this is an idea that takes player buy-in because if they don't want you messing with their characters between adventures, then you know, it, could, it could really not go well. But if you know your players and you assure them that you have a really cool story you, you want to get done before you know, in the time limit, then they might be okay with this. And okay. so every every – individual adventure is like you know it's it's like a television series really where they can have moved as much time forward as they want to and then what happened between just gets backfilled as the Mm -hmm. as it goes on and you could have them going through the entire progression of your story with all of the intrigue and action and fantastic ideas that you've got within the time frame uh, it might be that they're leveling every session or every sure. other session to accommodate that. And that may not be something you're looking for, but if you want to keep the plot, that's a way you can definitely do it. You just make everything very cinematic. Okay. So instead of like, originally they were supposed to sort of just wander around an interior veil track, trying to track this guy down. If instead when they finish up the current plot that they're dealing with, which should be about two sessions instead of having them wander over and spend a few sessions of them getting to Winterhaven and dealing with the Keep on the Shadowfell, they just are at the Keep on the Shadowfell. Yeah. And I describe what they previously... So it'd sort of be like um, in Battlestar Galactica when you say, oh, we've been sitting here for the past six months and it's just been one episode. Mm -hmm. 
Exactly. Okay. Um, and the what this this might solve uh, another problem is that if your if your players are not as invested as you would like them to be necessarily, mm-hmm. then they may not have a problem with you with you doing this, and they they may get to say, "Oh, sweet, what did I do?" And then rather than sort of, you know, because I've had the experience where you. You played. It's been uh, two or three weeks since you played last time. Mm-hmm. You get together and you're like, "Okay, guys, you remember what happened last session?" No. And and every single time you run a session, it's like they're remembering how to play all over again. Yeah, that's how my players are. Okay, then this idea might be perfect because it, it at least from from what I can tell, one of two things is going to happen. They're either going to go. Oh, good. He's not making me work for it anymore, and they're just going to be into whatever story you got that week. Mm-hmm. Oh, what 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 are we doing between now and you know the last time and now? Okay, well, what's going on right now? Boom, off to the races. Okay. Or they're going to go. I don't know that I like you messing with my character like that, and you're going to say, okay, well then I need you to buy in. Yeah, and and you and, and you abandon your you abandon the big met the big plot that you just described and you say the options are we run what i think are these awesome cinematic stories or you guys work with me <laughs> and and show some life here because mm-hmm. i'm i, I want to give you something fun and if this isn't fun you know why are we doing it <laughs> yeah you know it, it, it sounds it, it sounds really harsh to talk about the player gm relationship that way Mm-hmm. But when the rubber meets the road, you've put in a lot of effort as the GM. And even though there's not nearly the same amount of effort that players need to put in for their parts, mm-hmm. you want to see some you want to see some spark on their side of things. Yeah. So, That's and, advice. and if they're not going to give you spark, then mm-hmm. you're like, "All right, guys, it's it's Michael Bay time." <laughs> <laughs> and you bring the explosions. Yeah, and and you give them fun explosions that they don't really have to invest a whole lot of anything into. Yeah, but because you're technically ish in charge of the overarching overarching narrative, you mm. can tell them about the betrayal that so and so did. You can tell them about this this amazing thing that thus and such did in between the adventures. And when they get to that last thing, and it's like, what are you guys going to do with the stone? They've got a history that they remember because it's like they saw the movie of it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's a, actually a really good idea. Because you so and you know my players are the are the type. They're most of them are brand new players, mm-hmm. and this is just sort of they're not role players. This is just sort of a a fun thing to do on on Fridays. Yeah. Um. But but by they 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 don't even remember the names of the gods that they serve. Um, yep. So when I mention something, they'll be like, huh. And I wrote up a whole notebook for them that had all the information and um, they don't, they haven't read any of it and things like that. So I think that sort of, sort of telling them each session, well, this is what's happened and this is where you're, where things are going and everything, I think will actually, I think it'll encourage them um, because it'll seem like they're actually, you know, doing what they're, what they're supposed to be doing rather than them looking at me and saying, I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing. Whereas right. if I'm just straightforward and saying, this is what's going on now, mm-hmm. it'll make a lot more sense. And, and 
it's 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 sort of the it, it solves the sandbox paralysis problem because I know some people don't like big open world video games, for example, because <clears throat> they walk out of the sewer in Elder Scrolls Four Oblivion and they go, "You mean I can walk around all of this? Mm-hmm. What 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 do I do next?" And they freeze. Yeah. Right. Or it's the it's the creativity problem. Okay, you've got a blank piece of paper. What are you going to do? Um. What do you, what story are you going to write? I, I don't know. But if you say, okay, I'm going to give you four, four elements. You've got lemonade, a teddy bear, a shot glass, and a severed head. Write a story. You're like, okay, I can do that. Because you suddenly uh, constraints on your you – know, putting limits on your options breeds creativity. Yeah. So you, you get very explicit with them and they're like, well, well, what about this? And maybe you end up altering the session that you had planned a little bit to accommodate their, their newfound interest. But if you mm-hmm. say, here's what's happening, well, I don't like that. Well, how are you going to stop it? You tell me now. Yeah. You know, you, you, you've given them something that makes them react. That's the first if, – if you've got that, then you have something to work with. Okay. The what do I do now is, is nothing to work with. Excellent. Good. I'm well, glad it's definitely a, help. definitely a big help. Yeah, we got our session coming up on uh, in a few days, and I'll I'll let you know how that how that went. Cool. So, well, I think that's about all we've got. If you want to contact us, um, you can do so by calling one eight seven seven biz tome one eight seven seven biz tome, and you can leave a voicemail, um, or you can always leave a comment over on the website on. Uh, Tome Show's website. Uh, I want to thank you, Tracy, for being on the show. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. It was definitely entertaining, and uh, I think we, I think we had a really good discussion. So yeah. thank you very much. You're welcome. And I think that's all. <laughs>